But this is what I know. He wants people to experience freedom uh, just like we do. And what's neat about today, we're at the core passage of uh, our series in Galatians. We've been talking about this one passage over and over again, and finally we get to read about it and hear about it today. So I'm just going to read the first six passages in Galatians 5, and Mark will actually speak to even more of that. But it's a real gift that we're at the heart of talking about being free today. So Galatians 5, verses 1 to 6, hear these words. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Can we give a warm welcome for Mark Mitchell? Well, thank you so much, Brian, and thank you, PCC, for letting me be here again. We, we really look forward to this. Um, Gary and I doing this every year. I, I think, honestly, I think that CPC gets the better deal uh, having Gary, but, but I know that I enjoy coming here every year and uh, being part of, part of uh, what you guys are doing. And I know that uh, at CPC, we're really excited about um, how you guys are embarking on this multi-site vision um, we've been doing that for a few years, and uh, it's, it's kind of a wild ride, uh, but it's, it's a way for us to reach more people uh, with the gospel. And so that's why we're doing it, and we're praying for you guys as you, uh, as you take that important step into the future. And uh, so our text, as, as Brian has said, um, so Brian, I was going to read the entire text, um, so um, I'm going to just read it again, but I'm going to read the whole thing. And what I want is for you all to stand up as I read, okay? So stand up. I think sometimes it's good to stand up for the reading of God's Word, don't you? And so um, I'm going to repeat what Brian did, but I'm going to read the entire passage, okay? And uh, so let's read. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly wait by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut, on, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? What, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. 
Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Would you pray with me? Our Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, when I read this text, I think of how I have experienced in my life what you might call two conversions. That's right, not one, but two. My first conversion came when I was 17 years old, and I discovered that Jesus died for me, that I was forgiven that he loved me with an everlasting love, and that he would never leave me. And i got to tell you, that set me free. I had never experienced the joy and the freedom of that kind of love, and I was a new person. I wanted nothing more than to please him and live my life for him. It was like I was a brand new person. But before long... That desire to please him and live for him became an enormous burden. I never felt like I could do enough. And the only way I really knew to please him was to live by a rigid set of rules. Pray more. Read my Bible more. Never miss church. Don't do this. Don't do that. And honestly, the weight of it all crushed me. And it brought me to the edge of despair because I never felt... I could live up to this righteous standard. But then, something happened. And yes, it was like another conversion. This time, I understood, not only did Jesus die for me, not only did he love me, but he had freed me from the crushing weight of having to keep God's law. And I discovered that when I gave him my sin, he gave me his righteousness. I discovered that his spirit lived within me and he was actually the spirit of the living God working within me to reproduce his character. And I learned that I never grow out of my need for the gospel and that every single day of my life I need to preach the gospel again and again and again to myself. That was my experience. And and at times I fall back into this old mindset of living by the law. And when I do, the result in my life is always frustration. It's always defeat. And honestly, as I look around, I believe that for far too many people, the Christian life is like being on a treadmill. Treadmills are great if you want to get a little exercise. Unfortunately, the Christian life can feel like you're working hard but getting nowhere. Uh, Did you know that in Victorian England, treadmills were not found in air-conditioned health clubs? You know where they were found? They were found in prisons. Uh, They were used as a form of punishment. Prisoners would spend the bulk of their day walking, striving uphill on a treadmill, hoping to eventually pay their debt and be freed. That's living under the law. Striving to pay your debt. Getting absolutely nowhere. So this is the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing in his letter to the Galatians. And it all comes to a head here 
in chapter 5. Paul starts out in verse 1. And he says, Christ has set us free. For what? For freedom. It sounds redundant, but that's what he says. Christ has set us free, so be free. And of course, the implication here is that we were what? Slaves. And in this context, it is not slavery to sin he's pointing to, but it's slavery to the law, slavery to religious performance as a way of being right with God. Christ set us free from having to keep the law, from treadmill-like performance in order to be accepted and pleasing to Him. Now we are accepted in the Beloved. We have been given the gift of a righteous standing before a holy God. And we can do nothing to add to that. And so Paul issues this command. Stand firm then. So I want you to notice here that the indicative statement is followed by an imperative command. You are free. That's the indicative. Now, stand firm in that. That's the imperative. In the Christian life, the indicative always comes before the imperative. What we are always comes before what we must do. Get that turned around and you're back on the treadmill. Paul calls it a yoke of slavery. So as soon as we lapse into the idea that we have to somehow earn our acceptance before God by our obedience or by our discipline or, or, or by our performance, we become like a beast of burden crushed under a heavy yoke. We lose our joy and the Christian life becomes one big fat chore. This was an issue for the Galatians. Most of them were Gentiles, pagans as the Jewish people called them. But they'd put their faith in Christ and they'd experienced his transforming love, his acceptance, his forgiveness. But now they're being told that faith in Jesus is not enough. So false teachers called Judaizers had infiltrated the church and basically they said, listen, faith in Christ is really important, but it's not enough. Your men need to be circumcised and you all need to keep the law of Moses. It is not just faith in Jesus that makes you right with God. It's faith in Jesus and something else, keeping the law. And so Paul says, because of that, you must stand firm in your freedom. You know what that means? I've been thinking about this all week. Really what that means for us is that, is that our freedom in Christ cannot be passively accepted. And it certainly can't be taken for granted. It means that if we don't stand firm in it, if we don't resist the forces urging us to move away from it, we'll lose it. And what I've learned about myself is that my default mode of living isn't freedom. It's legalism. My automatic reply to God is, what must I do to earn your favor? That's why we must stand firm and fight for our freedom. And Paul feels so strongly about this that starting in verse 2, he is going to confront this issue head on. And I want you to see that there is a sense of, of toughness and urgency in his voice. Look what he says. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you. 
Again, I declare to every man, these are strong words. This is tough talk. And he warns them in three sentences of the serious consequences of embracing legalism as a way of relating to God. He says, Christ will be of no value to you. You will be alienated from Christ. You will fall from grace. He says, you cannot pick and choose. If you choose circumcision, then you will be obligated to keep the entire law. Your performance will not be graded on a curve. You must get 100% all the time. And so in these stern words, Paul is just saying, listen, you can't have it both ways. You cannot receive Christ, acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then try to keep the law, claiming that you can save yourself. You must choose between a religion of law or religion of grace. You cannot add anything to faith in his work as necessary for salvation. You try to add your work to his work, you lose him. Salvation is in Christ alone, and it's by grace alone, through faith alone. In fact, it's this faith that Paul emphasizes in verses 5 and 6. And really what Paul wants us to know in these verses is that our freedom is preserved by faith. And in demonstrating that, notice he moves from talking about you to we. So he's contrasting how the Judaizers want you to live with how he and his friends live in freedom. And he says two things about the life of faith. First, he says, the life of faith is a life of waiting. Anybody here like to wait? Wait in traffic, wait in line. I mean, we, we constantly have to wait in our society. But he says, through the Spirit, we eagerly wait by faith the righteousness for which we hope. So, notice this. Instead of working for righteousness, we eagerly wait for righteousness. And he is talking here about our future hope of complete transformation into the likeness of Christ. We are righteous now in terms of our standing before God. That's called our justification. One day, though, we will be transformed into his likeness, which is called glorification. That is our hope. That's what we wait for. And both come by faith through the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, actually helps us wait by faith. In fact, in Romans, Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That's our hope. That's what we wait for. And then he emphasizes again that genuine faith is really all that matters. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Again, he's saying there's nothing more uh, necessary to be accepted and embraced and welcomed by a holy God than faith in Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, then I guess I can go out and do whatever I want. It doesn't really ha matter how I live my life. But notice he says, genuine faith will express itself in a life of what? Of love. He's not saying works of love are necessary for our salvation, 
but rather that true faith will always manifest itself. It'll prove itself, if you will. It'll show itself in love. And we're going to come back to that idea of love in a minute. But again, what Paul is describing here, folks, is really two ways of life, two ways of thinking, two ways of living that are diametrically opposed to one another, and I would say mutually exclusive. So I want you to use your imagination for a moment, if you will, and, uh, and just, uh, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like you were married to a man named Mr. Law, okay? You were married to Mr. Law. Mr. Law was a, a good man, an upright man, but he didn't understand your weakness. Mr. Law came home every night and he asked, how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do today? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any of your time? Did you do everything I put on your list to do? So many demands, so many expectations, and you really want to please Mr. Law. But as hard as you try, you just can't do it. You can't be perfect. You could never satisfy Mr. Law. You forgot things that were important to him. You let the children misbehave. You failed in many other ways. It was a miserable marriage. Mr. Law always pointing out your failings. You never feeling accepted. And the worst of it was that Mr. Law was always right. And his remedy was always the same. Do better. Do better. And I will accept you. We didn't. You didn't. Because you couldn't. But then, Mr. Law died. And you remarried. And you remarried someone named Mr. Grace. Mr. Grace comes home every night and the house is a mess. The children are being naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove. And all you've done the whole day is read People magazine. <laughs> and yet Mr. Grace comes home and he sweeps you up in his arms and he says, I love you. I choose you. I died for you. And I'll never forsake you nor leave you. And it's hard to understand such love. I mean, you expect him to despise you and reject you and humiliate you, but he just keeps treating you so kindly. And over time, you find that being married to Mr. Grace is actually transforming you. It's changing you deep within. And that's showing up in how you live your life. You, you want to do the things that please him, like loving others. Not because you have to, but because you want to and you love him. Being married to Mr. Law never changed you. You had no joy, no peace. It was all guilt, all duty, and all fear. You see, the Apostle Paul here is just saying, listen, you can't be married to both at the same time. And why in the world would you want to go back to Mr. Law when you can have Mr. Grace? Why would you prefer condemnation to grace? Now Paul takes this tough talk one step further in verses 7 through 12 where he actually exposes those who are teaching and threatening legalism. And notice he says a number of things about them in these verses. He says, first he says, listen, you were running a good race. 
but they cut in on you. Have you ever been driving along, maybe on the road or on the freeway or, or wherever, and all of a sudden someone cut you off? Maybe even ran you off the road? It's like that. You're going along, you're obeying the truth of the gospel, and someone comes along and runs you right off the road. And then he asks, who did that? Not the one who called you by his grace. And then he uses a common little proverb of his day to drive home his point. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. What's he saying? He's saying a little legalism will soon contaminate not only you, but your entire church community. What I've discovered in my life is that legalism is really, really sneaky. It's insidious because it looks so good on the outside. Uh, Ray Steadman used to say the flesh, that's our sinful nature, the flesh has tremendous religious potential. And like leaven, it spreads. I mean, you saw in your study of Galatians back in chapter 2 that here you have the great apostle Peter, that rock who actually himself, when he came to Galatia, got caught up in what? In legalism. And Peter, who knew all about his freedom in Christ, slipped back and said, you know what, I can't eat with Gentiles any longer. And then you remember how the apostle Paul came along, this great champion of freedom, and he stood up and he got right in Peter's face. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? I mean, these two, these two men, Peter and Paul, facing off over this very issue. Legalism even got the best of Peter in that moment. But Paul still isn't done. He says, these people, they're throwing you into confusion. In other words, I mean, they're not bringing you peace and joy like the gospel does. They bring fear and doubt and confusion. And Paul says, for this, they'll pay the penalty. And then he says, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Because some of those Judaizers were saying, oh, Paul really did still preach circumcision. But if that were true, why would those same Judaizers still be persecuting him? That's what he asks. If that were true, Paul says, then the offense of the cross would be abolished. Have you ever wondered why the preaching of the cross is so offensive? Why is it so offensive? Here's why. Because human pride hates, hates the idea that we have nothing to offer God but filthy rags. I mean, that's offensive to me. I mean, I, I must have something I can offer to him. Human pride says, I can at least do something to contribute to the equation of my salvation. But the gospel says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And then Paul says something that might really surprise you. It sure surprised me, especially coming from the mouth of an apostle. Something he says about those who are teaching circumcision. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. I probably shouldn't comment on that. But it is what it sounds like. Maybe if I quote Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a commentary on Galatians back in 1519. And on this very verse, uh, Luther commented, and 
trust me, Luther was kind of, a, kind of an earthy guy, kind of a rascal. And here's what Luther said, a better translation of that verse would be, tell those who are disturbing you, I would like to see the knife slip. You can see how serious this issue of standing in our freedom is. We have to stand firm in our freedom because you cannot mix the gospel with legalism. We have to stand firm in our freedom because there are people out there who are trying to steal it from us and crush us under a yoke of slavery. And notice, right after he talks about faith expressing itself through love, he says something to us that doesn't sound very loving at all to our sensitive ears especially. But here's the deal. We mustn't ever separate truth from love. In fact, it was his deep love for people that drove his passion for God's truth. We think, you know, today we think love just means being nice, right? Accepting everyone, accepting everything, you know, never having a word of correction or rebuke. But Paul didn't define love that way. And by the way, either did Jesus. It seems to me I remember Jesus calling a group of people called Pharisees snakes. John Stott once said, I venture to say that if we were concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish that false teachers might cease from the land. That's a mild way of saying what Paul said. All this sounds like Paul is coming down pretty hard on these Galatians. But I want you to notice that with his pastor's heart, Paul also thinks better of them. He says in verse 10, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. And then in verse 11, he calls them brothers and sisters. So, so make no mistake, Paul loves these people fiercely. And it's precisely that love that he's going to focus on in the last three verses. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. There's another, the second declaration of freedom. You were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So God's gift of freedom makes love and service possible. And you know, when you think about it, I think this, this uh, exposes our warped cultural definitions of freedom. So how do we define freedom in our culture today? We, we define freedom as, well, freedom from all constraints, right? Freedom from all boundaries. Like an 18-year-old who escapes home for a college campus thinking, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. No parents hovering over me. Or we talk about financial freedom, which most often just means we can spend as much as we want on whatever we want. I think deep down we all know that's not freedom. Uh, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and we chased free love, complete sexual freedom, but we learned that freedom brought disease and disillusionment, broken homes and broken hearts. With secular freedom, we're never really free because what happens is we become a slave of our own desires. And as Paul says in verse 15, we end up biting and devouring one another. But true freedom, 
The kind of freedom that Jesus brings frees us to love and to serve others. And Paul says, this is the essence of all those Old Testament commands. It's all about love your neighbor as yourself. I hope you see the irony in what Paul is saying. Because in essence, he's saying, listen, you have been set free to do what? Serve. I mean, yeah, serve. Wait, I thought I, thought, I thought I was free. You are free. I guess I can be free and a slave at the same time. You can be free and in your freedom choose to serve others. There's a story that's been told from America's Civil War days before America's slaves were freed. And it's a story about a northerner who actually went to a slave auction in the south and purchased a young slave girl. And as they were walking away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and he said to her, you're free. With amazement, she said, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. And, and, and to be whatever I want to be? Yep. And, and to go wherever I want to go? He smiled and said, yes, you're free to go wherever you want to go. And then she looked at him intently and she replied, then I'll go with you. And that's really the choice we have before us. It's really not a choice in my mind. It's more like an invitation. An invitation to offer ourselves to the one who has purchased our freedom. That's what Paul says in another letter. He says, you have been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You are not your own. You have been bought. You have been purchased with a price. I mean, why would we possibly pass up what he has to offer? Why would we choose slavery to sin and to death instead of slavery to God? So I say to you today, in your freedom, become God's slave. Offer yourself to him. And the way we do that, Paul makes very clear. Simply put is to love. Love our neighbor. C.S. Lewis spoke about this very well. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. You know, I'm really glad uh, that that Peninsula Covenant Church is a church that is known for loving and serving its community. And the Peninsula will catch a glimpse of true freedom when they see more believers, more churches filled with people who are, who are willing to forget themselves to cast off the yoke of legalism and love others recklessly. And so I just leave you with this question. Are you standing firm in your freedom? Maybe like I did, you need another conversion. Maybe you need to get off the treadmill. Maybe you need to cast off the yoke of slavery and just leave it there on the ground. 
and start over and put on Jesus' yoke of freedom and run that race. Remember, remember what Jesus said? He said, my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is light. Is that the yoke you're carrying today? An easy yoke? A light yoke? It is for freedom that Christ set us free. So stand in it. Run with it. Don't let anyone cut in on you. The yoke of the law, the yoke of legalism leads to slavery and death. The yoke of Jesus, that light yoke leads to freedom and love. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have set us free in a, in a stunning act of redemption. You have, you have purchased us off the slave block and you have, you have freed us. And today, Lord, we want to say, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. We want to, to follow you as our new master. And in the freedom that you gave us, we want to learn uh, to be more loving people, more gracious people, giving people grace as you gave us and give us so much grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, um, for, the, for the steep price that you paid to make us your own. Uh, we don't deserve it, but we relish uh, to be called yours. We pray these things in your name. Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com. 